This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. People who are prosecuted for drug crimes uh, never get away with something. They are, it is our modern day scarlet letter. And even if you remove a, a, a tainted drug conviction at the end of the day, uh, these folks have, have suffered much more than I think is, it would be in a just uh, society. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, an interview show. My name's Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Today, we're going to be talking again about the Netflix documentary, How to Fix a Drug Scandal. I want to kind of frame this conversation with some thinking kind of biographically about myself and like where I entered this conversation. So in general, I'm skeptical of the drug war, and for a couple of reasons. One, I consider myself to be a civil libertarian, and like I have just just... I have questions about why the government is interfering in the uh, the behavior of consenting adults around issues that don't harm other populations. And then also, like, I have issues with the idea of mass incarceration. Um, on this show, we've talked a lot about the book The New Jim Crow and how the way the drug war is practiced, people of color, like, bear the brunt. Like, I always joke about how uh, when I was in my early 20s, like, everybody, know, everybody knew that you would go to the parties in, like, Gig Harbor in deep North Tacoma because, like, the rich white kids could afford the good drugs. Uh, that wasn't my brand, but, like, that was kind of a known-known thing. Uh, for context, I'm D.A.R.E. years old, I say, so, like, I went through D.A.R.E. in fourth grade, and it was one of those things where, like, yeah, yeah, drugs are bad, okay? And, like, as I've evolved as a thinker, uh, my thinking on drugs has evolved as well. Uh, here on the show in the past... In episode 55, we had Dr. Ingrid Walker from UWT, and she came on and talked about her book, High. And then on episode 69, we talked to Dominic Corva uh, about how the marijuana business is not quite working out in Washington State, how some folks think. Well, during the quarantine, I watched the documentary, How to Fix a Drug Scandal. And on last episode, we talked to Salong, Doug, and Katie about that film. Uh, one of the characters, and characters is the wrong word, but one of the people in that documentary who to me really stood out was an attorney named Luke Ryan. And he was somebody who, like, every time he was on screen, I was like, hell yes, tell them fools, do the right thing. And him and I crossed paths online, and I invited him on the show. And so, Luke, I want to welcome you to the show. It is very good to be here. Thank you very much, Nate. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Like, how long have you been practicing law? Um, I uh, passed the bar in um, December of 2005. Uh, after that, I clerked for a couple of years for a federal judge in Springfield, Massachusetts. And then in uh, September of 2007, I joined the law firm where I currently practice, uh, Sasson Turnbull, Ryan and Hoops in Northampton. So if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the previous episode, you should probably do that because we're going to reference that episode and the show a lot. Uh, the show is called How to Fix a Drug Scandal. But what occurs to me is there's actually three different scandals that are happening here. There's the scandal happening in each drug lab. And then there's actually like the cover up by the state of Massachusetts. And so I'm just wondering, like, from your point of view, how did this scandal happen? Like, how, how, how is it that we have these two drug labs in the state of Massachusetts where things got so out of whack? So it, it's a really good question. Um, it is, I think, one of those uh, many instances. It's a moment of reckoning in the war on drugs where... Um, the powers that be uh, were forced to confront what happens when you try to wage uh, war on the cheap. This uh, aspect of criminal prosecutions, the forensic analysis of unknown samples, is something that is, if you're going to do it right, it's really expensive to do. And if you're going to wage a drug war at the volume that it was waged during this era and continues to be waged, it, it, it comes with a pretty hefty price tag. And I think what happened is, is during the course of this uh, Annie Dukin and Sonia Farrick era, uh, you had a situation where uh, people uh, cut corners at these forensic labs and they didn't provide the kind of quality control, quality assurance, basic oversight needed to make sure that you didn't have these uh, chemists going rogue. So 
Um, it, it essentially is a, uh, a pair of scandals that, that joined together and, and really just wreaked uh, havoc on the Massachusetts criminal justice system. I think the part where I really struggle with this series of scandals is, is that the scandal in the drug lab is exposed and the state of Massachusetts goes immediately in cover-up mode. And I, I think contextually, I shouldn't be surprised by this because as a Washingtonian, we often look at Massachusetts as being like a kind of similar state. Like you have the, you know, the diverse big city, Boston, um, in Massachusetts, it seems like higher ed is like Boston's industry and Seattle's tech. Uh, but also there's that idea that like these are states that always vote Democratic and are like progressive states, but have really complicated issues when it comes to like people of color and particularly like black folks in the states. And so like, my wonder here is, is when the when the gravity of the cover up by the state prosecutors and state government kind of manifested itself to you, like what was your reaction? Well, it, it's interesting because um, there's the way the kind of the film portrays the, the sequence of events, and then there's the kind of the chronology. The chronology was the, the Boston scandal broke first in August mm. 2012, and, and the government, uh, uh, to its credit, uh, recognized that this was a big problem, that this was uh, a chemist who had acknowledged uh, tampering with evidence, dry labbing evidence in tens of thousands of cases, and there was this kind of marshalling of resources to deal with this problem over the first initial months. Millions of dollars were allocated to identify who the defendants were. It was allocated to um, explore the root causes that led to this crisis. And then in January of 2013, that's about five months after the Annie Dukin uh, scandal broke, we had this other uh, scandal break on the, in the western part of the state. And that one there, I think by that point already, the powers that be had some uh, drug lab fatigue and there was this real institutional uh, investment in having the second scandal be very, very small. And so that's where I think we, where I entered the picture. I'm out in Western Massachusetts. And um, when the second scandal broke, we had this kind of blueprint of how to deal with this. Uh, we were, everybody in the state was living it in Boston. And, but when it came to the, the Western Mass kind of component, nobody really wanted to, to follow that uh, model that we had. And there was this idea that, oh, no, this is nothing like Dukin. So um, in terms of my reactions, uh, that initially was, was perplexing to me. But part of the, the thing that was familiar was there is this weird dynamic within my state where Boston is located right on the east and it's the hub, uh, and the within the state, out in Western Massachusetts, we are kind of the um, the uh, the hinterlands. Uh, we're we're sure. the we're the part of the state that that really is is frequently overlooked when it comes to funding, when it comes to representation. Also, so that dynamic is was familiar. Just this idea that we're not going to pay too much attention to what's happening. On, on the this part of the the state, and so that that dynamic really became a part of the the problem here, and I think it in, in, in a, it affected how the government ultimately chose to deal with the two scandals. In watching this, I found myself going like, "This is insane! This is happening! I can't believe this is happening in two labs in the same state." And immediately, it makes me start thinking about like other places around the country. Have we had incidents like this in other places, or is like Massachusetts just unlucky enough to get hit in the face twice? It, that's a really good question. I think what you're you're let what I'm left with at the end of all of this is Massachusetts, and and, and I don't want to overlook some of the the problems that you identified around how um, our criminal justice system is really kind of racist at its core. Um, but uh, one of the things it does pretty well is how it handles indigent defense. So mm -hmm. um, we have a system where uh, lawyers like me and full-time public defenders uh, have limits as to how much, how many cases they can take on. And so when we, when we do this work, we can roll up our sleeves and we can, you know, pursue discovery and, and engage in, in the system in a way on our client's behalf that is 
uh, it can be zealous at times. There are a lot of jurisdictions across the country that are known as medium and pleadum states, uh, places mm-hmm. like New Orleans or Missouri, where public defenders are so overwhelmed, they literally have minutes to spend with their clients, and they just introduce themselves, and they're before a judge um, pleading out these very serious cases. So in those systems, I think the likelihood that something like this happened is very high, and it's very unlikely that uh, when you have a system where defense attorneys don't have, aren't a part of the checks and balances process, the I think the, the possibility for abuse like this is prevalent. So I, I am under no uh, illusions that this is a special Massachusetts problem. I think what happened was that you had some attorneys who could really pull back the, the, the cover of this scandal in a way that other attorneys across the country perhaps haven't been able to. Yeah, that neutral arbiter thing is something that came up in episode one that we did. Like, Annie Dukin's job is to be a referee between law enforcement and people accused of crimes. But instead, she's like fully on board with law enforcement to all sorts of levels that are corrupt and, and, and reasons why she served time in jail. Uh, I'm really curious for you, when was the moment when the gravity of all of this scandal became apparent to you? Like, at, at what moment? Were you, like, watching the news? Were you looking at, 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 at things, that, at, at documents? Like, at what point did you go, wait, 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 this is massive. Well, I, I think one of the moments that, that really uh, hit home for me um, was there's a, a couple of still frames in the documentary of this evidentiary hearing that took place in September of 2013. And, it, and it's really pretty striking. You see these two white lawyers, the back of our heads, sitting at a council <laughs> table, and this row of men of color in, in the dock, in, in cuffs. And this, this process had been created to really, for purposes of judicial economy. And whenever I hear judicial economy as a defense lawyer, I'm thinking, oh, this isn't going to be good for my client. Right. Uh, and in that hearing, as these folks that I'm sitting in front of, I represented one person at the time, who two people who were involved in that hearing, but there were like 15 of them. This man I never met before somehow managed to pass me a note about a question that he wanted me to ask a witness. I had no idea who he was. I had no idea what the facts of his case were. I had no idea whether the question would help or hurt his particular situation. And it was this moment of feeling like, oh my God, like this guy's counting on me. This is, this is not how this whole process is supposed to play out. So I, if that moment was one where I realized I'm involved in something here that is, is much bigger than my typical, I represent one person. This is what that one person is facing. This is a, uh, at the time it was, it, it, it sort of began to open my eyes about that. There were kind of many people both in and outside the courtroom who were counting on what was happening to, to get some justice. And it just didn't feel like it was set up uh, to achieve that outcome. And how did you respond when the state of Massachusetts said to you or said to the, to the court basically that like, we're only going to throw out cases in this very finite window of time. Uh, we're not going to consider other cases because we know for sure that the abuses were only happening in a small time range. Well, I mean, to get to that point, uh, it, it was preceded by a lot of kicking and screaming that I did. I can remember arguing, um, that uh, effectively what uh, I made the analogy that, you know, when a major corporation has a problem with its product line, there's mm-hmm. a defect. Um, the, 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 the thinking has evolved within corporate America that you pull that product off the shelves and you do a total recall, not because you're interested in every single consumer getting what they deserve, but because your brand is, is, hanging in the balance. If you don't, um, you know, some consumers might get a windfall if you, um, you know, issue new products to them that they don't deserve, but your brand is suddenly in peril because people will associate that with it being tainted. And I said, this is what our justice system needs to do right now. You need to get rid of these cases because our brand of justice is hanging in the balance. And for whatever reason, the the government had made a, you know, an argument that no, we can confine this. We can, we know for sure that this misconduct didn't begin until the summer of 2012, and and it was based on the limited resources we had at the time. It was really difficult to to prove that it extended beyond that. So, um, when that 
determination was was finally made that this is what the scandal looks like. This is when it started. This is when it ended. It's about a six month period. Um, you know, it was one of those things that uh, I was profoundly disappointed by. But at that, when you get when you get a ruling like that, all you can do is, you know, preserve your appellate rights and then move on. For sure. Uh- how did the process of the documentary like being filmed and making happen? Like, did the filmmakers show up? Is this all, is this all done after the fact? Or, or at what point do the Netflix folks or, or the production company show up in your life and start filming, this, uh, filming your work in this process? Really good question. Um, it, uh, there was a Rolling Stone magazine article that came out mm-hmm. in January of 2018 um, that uh, Netflix acquired the rights to. So by that point, um, they're really almost everything that's shown in the documentary had already happened. Uh, so they were recreating a something that had taken place, and I, you know, the filmmakers were. Uh, I, I would you know talk to them throughout it, and I think one of their great regrets was they weren't on the ground as stuff like this was unfolding, so they could do some real time reporting as opposed to this sort of historical recreation project. Uh, what has transpired since the filming of the documentary with these cases? Right. So the documentary ends uh, essentially in uh, the fall of 2017 um, is uh, when by that point, all the Sonia Farrick cases had been uh, dismissed. Um, I should say 2018. So at that point, all of, those cases had been dismissed. The Duking cases had been dismissed. You see those images of the shredded paper. Um, Since then, uh, there has been, as the documentary alludes to, some civil litigation. I represent one man in a pending uh, case in federal court, uh, Rolando Panate, who is suing uh, for a violation of his uh, right to due process. That case is, um, even though it was filed in the fall of 2017, remains in the discovery process. Uh, it's been up to the First Circuit Court of Appeals a couple of times. Um, and so that's taking place. And at the same time, I'm involved in uh, kind of parallel litigation on behalf of this class of Dukin and Farrick defendants um, who are seeking to be uh, compensated or the fees and fines that they paid as a result of these now vacated convictions. So that's another litigation that is still in the works. The government agrees that they have to give back uh, this money. And it's an interesting kind of um, another moment of reckoning where we have this system that for the last 30 or 40 years has financed itself by these quote unquote user fees. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, And the actual day that the Dukin dismissals happen that's depicted on the film. Uh, The Supreme Court of the United States came down with a decision in a case called Nelson v. Colorado that essentially said when you're prosecuted for a crime, the government takes money from you, that conviction is vacated and you can't be re-prosecuted. They got to give the money back. So that is, um, you know, uh, in, in, in any particular case, we're not talking about millions of dollars, but it, it, it's been an education to me, even for somebody who's in the system, how much the government is into people's pockets uh, and forces them to pay for the privilege of being prosecuted. One of the aspects of the documentary that I was startled by that the filmmakers never actually been centered on is, is that you have these parallel scandals. So you have Farrakh, who is falsifying paperwork and making drugs and consuming drugs and stealing drugs and, and, and. And you have Duke and his falsifying paperwork. Does it, did, it, did it occur to you or strike, strike you that Duke ended up getting more time than Farrakh did in the end? Yeah, I mean, that, uh, ultimately, I think uh, the, 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 the thing that led to that was when Farrakh finally pled her case out in, in January of 2014, um, the, the official version of events was that she had been this, uh, you know, trusted public servant who up until just the last few months before her uh, arrest had, um, you know, been on the straight and narrow. So I think it was, it it kind of made sense. It it didn't affect as many cases at the time. And um, there was, I think, also, um, there is something just different in in a sense about the two chemists and the fact that 
um, Annie Dukin was really embraced this kind of cop in the lab coat mentality where she was really considered herself an arm of the prosecution and was going so far as to adulterate samples to turn negatives into positives. And whereas Sonia Farrakh was, uh, by her own admission, you know, suffering from a, a, a pretty severe drug addiction or substance use disorder and was, and by the end, really just trying to use to avoid the debilitating effects of withdrawal. So there was, I think, some uh, sympathy for, for her that didn't exist in Dukin because her motivations, at least on paper, weren't as perhaps as nefarious as Miss Dukin's. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So we'll take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about things the documentary uh, made, look be- made look better, made look worse and left out. And then also, I just want to hear, like, what was it like to drag that prosecutor across the face of the earth in that one scene? Like, I, I, I was watching. I was like, let's go, Luke. That's my man. So <laughs> we'll be back. Hi, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. And I've been a member of TAPCO Credit Union since I was a kid, really. My parents set up a savings account for me, and I've had that account with them ever since. In fact, my first credit card wasn't from a big bank, it was from TAPCO, and I still have that too. What I appreciate about TAPCO is they are intensely local. Just like Channel 253, TAPCO keeps its focus on Tacoma and Pierce County. They have easy-to-reach branches and ATMs in the Tacoma area, and when I don't want to drive, I just use their online or mobile banking. To this day, TAPCO helps parents teach kids good savings habits. The Moolah Kids Club teaches kids about savings, not only through interest on their money, but with special prizes and discounts at local attractions. So if you want to help your kids start a savings account the same way my parents did, check out our local credit union at tapcocu.org. My thanks to TAPCO for their support of this podcast and Channel 253. And we are back. I want to thank you today for downloading this episode and giving it a listen. If you like what you're hearing on this episode, um, I want you to consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Channel 253 is a network of podcasts giving you local voices, local stories, and sometimes global voices and stories that you won't get anywhere else. Uh, We have a ton of shows that we're producing on the network right now. We have the interchangeable white ladies who are talking about justice and education every episode. Uh, We have Taco Man, who sooner or later is going to make his return and talk about all of the great shawarma in the Middle East. Uh, We have We Are Tacoma, talking about local art in the community and giving voice. And Crossing Division, Tacoma's talk show, which is telling stories and doing a COVID-centered episode every week, giving you advice on everything from how to do urban gardens to how to take care of your elderly relatives. So if any of that appeals to you, and I'm hoping that it does, please go to channel253.com slash membership and sign up. It's $4 a month and $40 a year. In addition, I want to give you a reminder, dear listener, that we have our hashtag Nerd Farm Reads book club. And the current book is Know My Name by Chanel Miller. Uh, if you are reading this book, great. Thanks for joining us. If you're thinking about reading this book, please, please, please buy it from King's Books. You can buy online and get it shipped to you. Uh, The book is the story of Chanel Miller, who is a survivor of sexual assault by Brock Turner, the Stanford rapist. And I'm about 100 pages into it, and I am just struck by how piercing the writing is. And this book is worth your time. If you read the book, tweet about it using hashtag NerdFarmReads, and we'll include your tweets in our conversation. All right. Luke, back to you. Uh, I have the experience of being involved in a couple of smaller documentaries and one of the things I'm always struck by is, is that there's the way that I see events and there's the way the documentarian sees events. Then, then there's the way that like the editor sees events. And then there's the way the public ends up seeing events. So I'm just wondering who comes out looking better or worse. Uh, let's start with better first. Who, got, who comes out looking better than they deserve in this documentary, if anybody? Hmm. Oh, I, I think that's an easy one. Um, I do. <laughs> 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 I, I, I uh, honestly, I mean, I, I think uh, after this um, came out, uh, the first few weeks, I, I, was, I didn't have a Twitter account uh, that was really active, but I became aware that there was this um, kind of groundswell of uh, people who were tweeting uh, really nice things about me. And, and, 
And one of the things that I really think it's important for me to acknowledge whenever I get the opportunity is um, to the extent I get to kind of be a hero in, in this, it's only because, um, uh, you know, I spent my formative years as somebody who was a daily illicit drug user. Um, I, I spent many years of my life taking very few sober breaths. I didn't kind of find myself and go to law school until I was 30 years old. And that uh, period of time that I was given to, uh, uh, like the former President George Bush, when I was young and irresponsible, I was young and irresponsible. So many of my clients, when they are young, are forced to be responsible because they're young men of color, they're in areas where they're uh, over-policed. So I was kind of given this free pass for a, a period of my life that allowed me to then kind of, you know, let my uh, substance use run its course and then become an attorney and then go to law school and put on a suit and tie. And, and so I easily, you know, who, who could have ended up looking worse? I easily, in a, in for, uh, if it wasn't for my race, socioeconomic status, I could have easily been a Farragher Dukin defendant. So I get to look a certain way in this documentary that is inconsistent with the reality of my lived experience of being somebody who um, has a complicated backstory to get to where I am. It's wrong to say that's awesome, but that's fascinating to hear. Uh, who gets a raw deal in this? Like who come, who, who got the short end of the stick from the editors? Um, I, I, I'm not going to uh, ascribe any blame to this, but one person who's featured for about 30 seconds is a woman named Rebecca Jacob uh, Stein, who uh, became, uh, you know, my, uh, we, we worked, I worked more closely with Rebecca in starting in the summer of 2014 through uh, late 2017 uh, than I have with any other person in a professional way. Um, she really, uh, um, her, her work as an appellate attorney for a full-time public defender was a lot of the stuff that's uh, uh, writing briefs that is hard mm -hmm. to kind of depict in a, in a documentary than the kind of trial attorney cross-examining witnesses. So um, I think it's, there's obvious reasons why in making choices, you know, her contributions weren't um, recognized to the extent that they might otherwise have been. Um, but she, I, 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 anytime I'm given a chance to say anything nice about another human being, she's really at the top of my list. So uh, her, her contributions, I think, um, you know, if you're going to make another few episodes and I'm the director, she's going to feature pretty prominently. It, it helps to be a charismatic bearded, bald, handsome man like to get more attention that way. Uh, I know that there's somebody listening to this who is saying and like muttering to themselves that the people who were swept up in these court cases, many of them were actually guilty and they had drugs on them. And it's a shame that like they have been freed uh, because like it's their own fault for getting caught up in, in this dragnet. What do you say to that person? Well, um, if given the chance, I, I like to start with what are they guilty of? Um, we, uh, you, you, uh, in your opening, I think touched on some really. Uh, I think you called yourself a drug war skeptic. I think I'm. I've reached the the, the point where uh, I'm a drug war resistor, and um, I think that the criminalization of um, uh, substance use is one of the great tragedies uh, of, our, of our lifetimes. Uh, we had the experience of alcohol prohibition. Uh, it did not work. It did the exact same thing that drug prohibition has done. It has made us live in a much more violent world, a much crueler world, a world where drugs are more prevalent, where they're, cheap, where they're cheaper, and they're, where they're more potent. And so these 90% uh, of these uh, people who had their cases dismissed were prosecuted in the district courts of Massachusetts, the vast majority were for simple possession, and um, they uh, uh, suffered uh, through a, an, an unjust system targeting them for something that, that should not be a crime. Uh, so I, I think that that's my first response is when you're in law school, you learn that there are, are crimes that are called malum per se, things that we all know intuitively in ourselves are wrong. 
it is wrong to commit murder, it is wrong to commit rape. Then there are crimes that are called malum prohibitum, which are crimes we've just decided we're going to make it illegal to uh, consume the fruits of a plant that grows wild all over the, co the country and, and, and lock people up and, and have all of you, you talked about the, the new Jim Crow, like the collateral consequences that these folks have suffered. Um, you know, we think they got away with something. These people are were deprived from volunteering at their kids' schools. They were shut out of legitimate employment. Some of them were deported. They lost driver's licenses. They got kicked. They not only got kicked out of public housing, they had their grandparents or their parents who did nothing wrong get kicked out of public housing. So to the extent it looks in the film like they got away with something, people who are prosecuted for drug crimes uh, never get away with something. They are, they're, it is our modern day scarlet letter. And even if you remove a, a, a tainted drug conviction at the end of the day, uh, these folks have, have suffered much more uh, than, uh, um, than, than I think is, it would be in a just uh, society. Here, here. Um, one of the points that was made in our prior conversation about the show was in which the way the filmmakers basically scandalize uh, Ferrex drug use. And I honestly, I, I fell victim to this as well. Like I, I, I firmly remember like texting somebody halfway through the second episode and being like, Oh my God, this white woman's making crack in the lab. What, what, what? And like, that's where my focus stayed for like half of the documentary. But then the other like second climax moment to me is when you end up pinning the prosecutor down and are basically beating them about the head in court about their evidentiary record and how the dates don't line up. At, at what point were you like, oh, Eureka, I got this. I'm going to like, like, cause, cause the way the film depicts it, like you very much are like a baseball player and seeing a slow pitch coming in and like, you're just turning on it. Like, in that moment, like, what was that like for you when you discovered that? And what was that like for you in that moment in court? Yeah, so there's uh, a few moments in this whole process that really, um, the, the lived experience, I mean, we all have moments in our lives that, you know, you're, you're, you're going through and you, you have like, this kind of feels cinematic. It feels like I'm <laughs> in, in like something that could end up on a screen because it, it just feels like this. Um, so... Finding this evidence uh, in in these bankers' boxes was one of those moments, and and holding a piece of paper that um, ended up, you know, I was able to within a, a matter of hours kind of conclusively determine that um, the chemist in my case was using at work on the day that she's certifying the substances are, are narcotics. Like that moment there was once I, I, I those things matched up, I, I realized okay that there's going to be consequences in this case. Like there's going to, at some point in this process, I just had to have faith. This matters. This is one of those moments where um, there just has to be a, a reckoning for, for these two pieces of paper. Um, the stuff in court, um, I, I never know. Um, uh, you know. One of the things that being an advocate is, um, I, I never know if I'm really scoring points. And one of the, it's one of the reasons as a trial attorney, I like to have somebody second seat a case because you, you get so locked in with a witness that um, you don't know to what extent it's making an impact on a fact finder, be it a jury or, or a judge. So it's always good after something like that has happened to check in with somebody else uh, and, and try to find out, you know, what, how that went. And so I can't really say that I was in any particular moment in court, uh, you know, really kind of relishing or reveling in, in an experience. I just didn't know to what extent I was moving the ball forward in the direction that I was hoping it would go. Has the state of Massachusetts taken any measures to prevent something like this happening again? Like one of the things that like Doug has talked about in the last episode and during the break also is, is that these folks who are working in a drug lab, aren't drug tested and considering like we give drug tests to welfare recipients in many states uh considering folks in many states have like drug tests to work fast food it seems shocking to me that the folks in the drug lab weren't tested uh, beyond that what measures has the state taken to like keep this from happening again well on the whole drug uh testing issue um 
I, I think that you can lay that at the uh, the union that represents these um, these state workers. Uh, you know, we're living in an age. I know you're a big labor guy, um, <laughs> and, uh, where you know unions are not what they used to be. But some of the most powerful ones in in Massachusetts, where I live, uh, represent uh, these chemists and uh, correction workers. Uh, I th I'm convinced that one of the main reasons Massachusetts has done such a bad job in the COVID-19 crisis of uh, uh, decarcerating and lowering our, um, our, our inmate population is because the guards are opposed to it. And, and so, but the, the, the union that represents these chemists has um, really, I think, taken a hardline position that uh, and I don't know whether it's there's a fear that because they're dealing with drugs all the day and, and you know, they open up a package and some gets in their hair or places where you're going to get false positives. But for whatever reason, I don't believe that that has changed. Um, cameras would have been a, a good thing to have, if they, particularly in the, uh, uh, the, 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 the vault holding, you know, all of these uncontrolled substances or the standards. Um, I'm not aware whether there's been any uh, of that seemingly um, cheap technological way to safeguard the integrity of evidence. Um, but just more kind of, uh, you know, globally, I, I think that the, my feeling is that there, the, the, what needs to really, what this, what this scandal should teach us all is that the drug war is really rotten at its core. This, if, if you can't handle this part of a drug case, just getting it to the lab and getting it from the lab without having evidence get compromised, this is easily the least complicated, the least morally compromised part of any stage in the process. So I, I think that my hope is, is that there you know, this can be a part of a momentum to um, to realize you can't just put band-aids on all these parts of uh, of the system. There needs to be a fundamental change in how we deal with a public health crisis, and the criminal justice system is ill-suited for that. So I know that, like any good lawyer, you're not going to comment on ongoing litigation, and I don't want to put you in that spot. But I wonder, uh, from your point of view, if you were a policymaker. Like, what is the policy remedy that we need in order to prevent not just uh, this scandal, but like the plague of mass incarceration across the country? Like, is is the answer legalization? Is the answer decriminalization? Like, like what is the policy answer to prevent like the system we have right now? Um, I, I think that uh, decriminalization of of all controlled substances is is step one. Um, now, you're not going to solve the problem of mass incarceration just by ending the drug war. Um, it, I, I think it's a huge part of it, but it's not the only part. Um, I think that when you're talking about um, uh, wrongful convictions, um, we, we, we now live in a, in a system of, it's no longer a system of trials, according to the Supreme Court. We live in a system of pleas. Over 90% of uh, convictions come by way of, uh, of pleas. And, and I think that one of the, um, and it's touched on in the documentary, one of the, 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 the problems with an adversarial system that we have is we put prosecutors in the position of having to divulge evidence to defense attorneys like me uh, that would uh, make it more difficult for the prosecutor to, to accomplish their, their goal of convicting a defendant. And so there's this moral hazard in our system that I think for too long, um, we've just assumed, well, these are officers of the court, uh, prosecutors are gonna do the right thing and, and, and divulge uh, this exculpatory evidence. And, and I think that that's not the way human beings uh, behave. It's an it's a adversarial system. It's very, very competitive. You want uh, to win. And then you put on top of that, a lot of the time prosecutors feel like they're prosecuting somebody who's a really bad person who needs to be put in jail. Like it's just a recipe for um, hiding evidence that uh, ultimately can um, deprive somebody of their liberty. And, you know, the uh, it's not lost on me that during the month of April, we also had the innocence files come out where you have all of these issues that are related to 
uh, prosecutorial misconduct, withholding of evidence. Um, and, and there, as we go back and look at uh, um, cases, so often we have things like DNA that can prove, nope, we got it wrong in this one. That ID, that cross-racial identification, yep, that was wrong. And oh, this person's been in jail for 30 years. So I think that uh, there has to be this kind of coordinated effort to identify all the places in the system where injustices have been occurring with regularity and then do what we can to uh, make major or minor changes to, uh, to, to make a better system. Uh, there's so much at stake for these folks. No, that's really fascinating you brought that point up. I think about how, like, the idea of that prosecutors are supposed to disclose exculpatory evidence, uh, like, the, the idea of a Brady, Brady violation is, like, that, that's my, like, entry into this concept. How often do you think it is that prosecutors are withholding exculpatory evidence against, against defendants? Is this is something that happens, like, one in a thousand cases, or is it happening all the time? Well, I think it's the same sort of thing I'll, uh, when we talked earlier about how often are there is there misconduct at these drug labs? Um, how often do uh, prosecutors withhold exculpatory evidence? I'm actually convinced that most of the time this happens, it's inadvertent. It's because the mm-hmm. prosecutors have a huge stack of files on their desk and they don't, it doesn't occur to them that a, a, a statement is actually exculpatory because they haven't dug deep and don't understand why that would be critical to a defense. They just see this as, oh, I'm not going to use this because I, I, I think it just muddies the water. Actually, sometimes muddying the water is exactly what I'm, my job is to do as a defense attorney. So I think uh, there was a Ninth Circuit, out where you live, uh, opinion uh, about six or seven years ago uh, by uh, 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 one of the, the judges uh, in that court. And he basically said that we are, that there is a mass epidemic of Brady violations um, mm-hmm. nationwide and that uh, there, there needs to be, the court needs to do much, much more to, um, to prevent this from happening. For too long, the court has been kind of passive to it. And one of the ways the courts have been passive to it that's kind of fascinating is often they find Brady violations uh, and they write opinions giving relief, but they never uh, name the prosecutors who commit the Brady violations. It's like this professional courtesy that judges give prosecutors. And so I think that it's a huge, huge problem wherever there is uh, criminal law being practiced in this country, there are Brady violations that are happening all the time. That's fascinating. I think about my classroom when I teach about the Fourth Amendment, the exclusionary rule, like the only way you get the police to follow the Fourth Amendment is by having sort of a penalty. And in the absence of a penalty, then the police will lack with impunity. And some kid right now is going, Matt versus Ohio. Yes, child. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned to me the most po- one of the most poignant moments in the documentary when there's that row of defendants and all of them are men of color kind of lined up. Uh, do you know how that row of gentlemen is doing nowadays? Um, I, I, yeah, some of them. Um, I, I mean, I, I knew all the attorneys who were uh, representing them. Some of the, uh, um, a fair number of, of, of those folks have stayed in touch because they want, they've wanted updates on the class action litigation that's ongoing. And, and so I, I field a lot of calls from folks who call up and say, hey, I had this case back in 2010, or I was at that hearing. And, um, you know, one of the, uh, the um, I, I think, things that uh, is great about looking at the other side of this uh, is that all the dismissal of these tens of thousands and thousands of cases did not spawn a crime wave. Um, so mm. it is, I think, a great uh, a- example of why we, we don't need uh, these drug laws to stay safe. I, I, I am hopeful that at some point we're going to look at this as, as one of those kind of, it's a beachhead, uh, sort of the same way that the um, 2003 Massachusetts Goodrich versus public health case was on gay marriage. 
Um, when that decision came out in 2003, the, the right response was like, this is the end of Western civilization. This is going to usher in uh, debauchery, the likes of which our country will never recover from. Ten years later, the Supreme Court of the United States looked around and said, you know what, that didn't happen. Actually, uh, we can no longer uh, sanction uh, state homophobia. So I think when big moments like this happen in a state and, and there's huge consequences within that state, our states are laboratories. And, and hopefully that the, what's the, the data that's coming out of what took place here in Massachusetts will be things that policymakers and um, stakeholders across the country can use and say, hey, wait a minute. Um, this is, look at the Massachusetts experience with mass exoneration, and it does not lead to these outbreaks of, uh, of crime that, that we really need to be all that concerned about. Here, here, here. We like to end the show with a thing called the wind down. And so the wind down is your opportunity to share some of your collected wisdom with the audience. Um, who is one person they should be listening to? It could be a musician, a podcaster, a speaker, a thinker, an author. Who's somebody this audience, after hearing you talk, should go listen to as well? Oh, wow. Um, this is a, there's a lot of pressure on this one to pick, <laughs> to pick one person. There, there are um, – all right. I got to pick one wise sage uh, to look to. Um, as a member of the Bald Brotherhood, you can give two, honestly. It's okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with, with somebody who I think has been doing a great uh, job at calling attention to a couple of uh, aspects of um, just really, really awful parts of the drug war. That's uh, Radley Balco, uh, who's a columnist, writes for uh, the Washington Post. He's done a lot on wrong door raids um, the militarization of the police. Um, when, when he throws something up there on Twitter or, or does a piece, um, I, I think that uh, his, his, his work is, is really um, right on point for, for drug war stuff. Um, my second um, uh, person that I think would be... Uh, uh, that I would give a shout out to is there's a doctor named Kimberly Sue, who uh, is one of uh, the harm reduction heroes out there who um, she, while she was at Harvard uh, spearheaded this push for safe injection sites and, and really leaned in against a Boston mayor who uh, Marty Walsh, who was in recovery himself and who, was adamantly opposed to this idea that, you know, people with uh, heroin use disorders should be able to go to places where they can um, uh, safely uh, administer uh, this narcotic. Uh, she and, and the, her colleagues um, were instrumental in changing this one politician's mind. They, they said, um, you know, it's great you found your way through your own substance issues, but your way is not the only way. And why don't you go to someplace like Vancouver and see how it looks on the ground? And why don't you read these studies about um, the lives it saves and the, and the ways in which uh, having these um, places can uh, be uh, avenues to treatment for people to, to get off drugs. And so she is a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, person. Uh, she's now in New York. Uh, and, and I think harm reduction as opposed to prohibition really is the, the alternative. And she is somebody who I think um, she's written books about experiences in the criminal justice system and being a, a medical physician. But I think she also just understands the structural issues around race, around gender. And, and I, uh, I would put her at a very high part of my list for people who we all should pay more attention to. Well said, well said. It's funny you mentioned Radley Balco, because uh, I think that Radley Balco and Justin Amash are the only two, well, not only, but are two of the most consistent and honest, loud libertarians. And uh, Radley Balco's book, Rise of the Warrior Cop, is one of those books that, like, as you read it, you're like, this is, 
the entire system of mass incarceration and police militarization are tied hand in hand. And so much of it is built on racial resentment. And it's, it's a shame that we got here. And it's frustrating to me, frankly, Hoff and Joe Biden's name comes on the wrong side of history. That's oh. a <laughs> whole different conversation, whole different episode. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, in the wind down, can I throw one more shout out there for somebody who we all should pay attention to? I, know I won't you, stop you. You gave me the bald guy, too. Now I'm really pushing it for three here. Uh, um, there is a Polk County school board member named Billy Townsend. And I know you're a teacher and I know that you have uh, a lot of teacher listeners out there. If you want to read somebody who has your back, who has students back, who is leaning in and naming a lot of the reasons why we have this test and punish uh, world. Uh, Billy Townsend, Polk County, uh, Florida. He's a prolific writer. He, he tweets, but boy, is he on point. And is he smart and is he bold and courageous? And, and, and I think is one of those people who is, a, as it a, is in elected government that kind of gives you hope for the system. So that's my third. And I appreciate the giving me, uh, I won't go for four. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. Uh, Luke, if people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Uh, I, I jumped on Twitter in the middle of April, uh, and so I'm at Luke Ryan Law MA, um, and uh, have begun uh, to uh, to tweet more. and And um, I'm not on Facebook. Uh, I have a LinkedIn account, um, and but you know I'm, I'm I'm it's been it's been a weird time. But I'm mostly a practicing attorney as opposed to a social commentator. Um, so, uh, there, there, you know, during this pandemic, I've probably been more active than I may be in a couple of months when I've got some big case that I'm, uh, got the blinders on and, uh, but I, I, I anticipate I will continue to, um, to chime in to the extent I, I feel like my voice, uh, can, can be a part of a, a larger course, uh, trying to move conversations where I think they need to be moved. I want to thank you for your work, and I also want to thank you for coming on the show today. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for doing what you do. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Off air, we can probably have a different conversation. <laughs> That's fine. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. <laughs> The, the off air is always the best part, by the way. Like yeah, every podcast yeah. ends and I'm like, <laughs> oh man, we need that 10 minutes, not that last 10 minutes. All right. Great, great, great. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.